The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week we're at great institutions on either side of the Atlantic. Later in the podcast, I'll discuss the British Museum's new displays of Islamic art with Dr Jane Jakeman. Everything was really a bit dull and slightly dusty looking before, but now you really get the glitter and the shine and the absolutely heavenly arrays of blues from turquoise through all the peacocky colours. But first this week, we're in New York, where the Museum of Modern Art and MoMA PS1 are jointly staging a vast Bruce Nauman retrospective. Disappearing Acts covers the extraordinary breadth of Nauman's work over six decades, with no less than 165 works, 50 that occupy the entire sixth floor of MoMA and another 115 filling the whole of MoMA PS1. Our senior editor, Nancy Kenny, spoke to the exhibition's co-curator, Cathy Halbreich, about the show. The Bruce Nauman retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art and MoMA PS1 has a staggering range of mediums. It's also fairly intense, with the artist pursuing disturbing psychological themes. We're joined today at MoMA by Kathy Halbreich, the curator of the show, which was organized in collaboration with the Schaulager in Basel. The subtitle of your retrospective is Disappearing Acts. Can you tell us why you chose that? Well, there are many reasons. Um... But let's start from the simplest, which was in 1979, Bruce decided to abandon either coast where art is most made, debated, uh, and certainly sold for a place that it's very hard to get to, um, New Mexico, Galisteo, New Mexico. And uh, essentially, he's been there since then which is a pretty radical thing for a very ambitious artist to do, especially one that's already had success in New York um, while living in California. Bruce was 25 when he had his first exhibition at Leo Castelli and 30 when he had his first retrospective, um, which must be a misnomer somehow. Um, But so to abandon where art is... uh, underscored. I think it was quite a courageous act. Of course, there are also sculptures um, that have holes in them that purportedly are the size of one of Bruce's body parts. Um, There uh, are sculptures in which you disappear. The view of yourself as you approach a monitor is destabilized and you see yourself, in fact, coming from the back. But also, Bruce has, since the beginning of his career, been very skeptical of any adamant truth. So, for example, in a work such as Seven Vices and Virtues, uh, engravings on stone, one over the other, it's very hard to decode one from the other. And so, in a way, truth has also disappeared. And in its place is our own abilities to see and understand and give meaning and uh, be in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, his retreat from both coasts, do you think it had a, a benefit for his for his work overall? Well, it led to a happier life for him, so I suspect, yes, it did. But there are, again, works that deal exactly with um, 
the space that Bob Rauschenberg called between art and life, um, Bruce has rode right through in works such as um, Green Horses, a work that, by the way, when I did the last retrospective 25 years ago, I totally didn't understand. So the nice thing about doing something twice is you get to make your uh, mistakes both clear and um, perhaps erase them a bit. Uh, Green Horses is Bruce uh, on one of the horses he has trained. He had a side business as a horse trainer. Uh, and he's doing the same thing he himself did in his studio in the 60s in ways Bruce didn't know what it meant to be an artist, so he just did something like pacing or walking around the corner. And in Green Horses... He is training his horse by going through repetitive performances, if you will. So that's very much a part of his life on the ranch. He lives on a ranch. He also made a, um, an, another video that I'm not sure I fully understood 25 years ago, um, setting a good corner. And Bruce is doing exactly that. He's making a corner for a fence on his ranch. And the video takes just as long as it takes him to do the job well. And at the end of the video, you see the comments of his neighbor critiquing what he's done. Um, this, in fact, is a wonderful example of disappearance as well, because Bruce is constantly walking out of the frame to pick up a tool and come back. Um, and, yeah, I, I think he's lived the life of a rancher um, in a very expansive studio, um, animals seem to become a preoccupation for him after he moves to New Mexico. For example, you have effigies of animals hanging from the ceiling in one gallery. Well, what they are actually are um, uh, taxidermy forms that he has reconfigured to some degree. And his neighbor, George, who is um, a trapper, is also seen in another video uh, I think doing something that is quite extraordinary. He is skinning a fox, which is his business, in the most actually extraordinary craft-like way. And this, when I finally got myself to watch it after many years uh, and realized that Bruce's um, work is about doing a job well. And uh, the animals are part of his everyday life. Um, and they do figure, uh, as you mentioned, in these uh, remarkable, almost classical sculptures. Um, the carousel in the same room with animals uh, going round and round, and as they do, inscribing a drawing on the floor. The uh, structure in which, on which they spin is what is used to train horses. So what's at hand often becomes part of a sculpture. Did he give you feedback on your choices? Yeah, there's a kind of myth that Bruce is totally hands-off. And while he doesn't engage himself, as many artists do, in every detail of the exhibition, and that can be an enormous pleasure to work with an artist in that kind of intimate way, he uh, certainly looked at all of the floor plans at least three times, uh, the Schallager floor plan, the PS1 floor plan, and the MoMA floor plan. He looked at the checklist. Uh, he made, I think, only one or two additions to it, one of those being a drawing that uh, weds 
animals and humans, which turned out to be quite a good hinge for us. Um, he was present in Basel because he was making a new piece, that uh, Leaping Foxes sculpture that you just referred to. So he was around for like two weeks. And after he finished the piece, because a lot of it had been thought about before arriving, um, like the fifth day he was there, I said, well, what are you going to do? And he just roamed around. And if he saw something he wanted to have changed, he said it. I was getting actually notes from him this weekend about adjusting sound and things, things that actually I would expect an artist uh, to do because the spaces change how you hear things and see things. And well, there's an amazing variety of work in the show. Uh, Nauman's never adopted a signature style. Uh, you have the neon signs and sculptures. There are drawings and fiberglass. You have the pyramids made out of animal parts, the sonic environments, not to mention all the video works. Uh, where does that, I guess you would call it, restlessness come from? Well, I'm not a psychologist, um, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about Bruce uh, over the years, and I'm not sure I really can give you um, a scientific answer. Bruce has said that um, one of the tricks of his trade is when something is resistant to go towards it, not to avoid it. He's also very clearly um, not interested in repeating himself. So you can see him work through an idea maybe in a few pieces that are similar and then just move on to another set of materials and structures and, and even ideas. But the stylistic um, discontinuity, if you will, the uh, extraordinary range of materials and forms should not be thought of as intellectual inconsistency. I think there are, just as Bruce uses loops in his videos and films and circles back to things, uh, it's a, it's a, he constantly is rethinking his own work. For example, sometimes he makes drawings after sculptures. And I asked him about that, and he just simply said, I wasn't finished with the idea. Uh, Somewhere deep in Bruce, I think, is an extremely sensitive human being who feels the inequities and uh, disasters um, and manipulations of government in this world acutely and always has. In that sense, I think he is will be an eternally contemporary artist. I mean, having followed the new technologies involved in surveillance and ended up making works about it in the 70s, or having made an artist's book uh, that's called L.A. Air or Lair, he's always playing with language as well, which are photographs of the L.A. sky that look like monochrome paintings. I mean, they're deep, dark colors, but it's pollution, or, I hate to bring this up, but we have been reading in the front page of our papers about dismemberment for the last week in really hideous ways, um, decapitation. And Bruce's uh, hanging heads suggest, uh, again, that man's inhumanity to man is something he's very concerned about. So you see some of the work as explicitly political? Not explicitly. No, I didn't say that. 
Um, and, and in fact, I don't think Bruce is explicitly a political artist, but I think implicitly uh, his constant uh, revision of the status quo is a political act. But um, – and I'm not sure I'm allowed to say this, but one of his most famous works is I think uh, Pay Attention Motherfuckers, which is a print – and as we know, when you make a print, it's you write on the plate and then you put it through the press and it comes backwards, which Bruce wanted, and he over-inked it, so it's even harder to read. But it is, I would say, central to what he expects of his viewer. This is not a show for passive viewers. I happen to believe there's a great deal of beauty in the show, which very few people seem to write about or think about. But it's a show really about being vigilant and being alert and aware and uh, coming up with your own ideas. Bruce is very skeptical of truths that exist in the world um, and skeptical in the sense of uh, he tests them and he asks us to test them too. Well, he came of age in the 60s. Mm -hmm. Would you describe him as sort of blazing a trail away from minimalism? Um, I think in characteristic fashion, Bruce knows how to use everything. So I think he used minimalism. But what the repetition, for example, of minimalism, what he wanted that he thought was lacking in minimalism was this psychological core. I would say was um, explicit, maybe uh, feeling, not explicit in the sense of, I understand this all, but that you knew there was a beating heart in this work. And in minimalism, it's very sublimated. Well, there's also a sort of scorched earth quality to his creations. Does he want to goad the viewer into an intense reaction? I think he wants the viewer to participate, just as he did when he went... In 1968, he was still making objects, objects that referred to his own body a lot of the time. And two years later, he thrust the viewer into a participatory mode through his corridors where we occupied space and he disappeared uh, for a very long time. So Goad... No, I think, you know, I don't think Bruce seeks to illustrate anything. I actually don't feel there's a scorched earth quality, um, maybe more so 25 years ago. But I think in the last 25 years, when you have, you know, remarkable works like Contrapasto Studies, a seven screen projection of him doing an action he did in the late 60s for a video, Walk with Contrapasto, where he sashayed down this very tight corridor, as he expects us to do in others. Um, but he's redoing it as a much older man. He's no longer this lithe, very, very, very handsome young man. He's a man who has fought cancer. He's a man, and he says this, so I'm not embarrassed to reveal it, is wearing a colostomy bag, which is, it's not a pot belly. Uh, he's doing this piece shortly after he's had intensive um, cancer treatment. So 
the nerves in his feet have been um, injured a bit. He has neuropathy, so it's not as graceful a motion. For me, um, this is like bravery. It's not scorched earth. It's like helping us adjust to our own aging bodies and to see um, what it means to look at that straight ahead. That is Bruce. He looks at things straight ahead. He doesn't advert his eyes. In 1969, we see him making a slow-motion film called Black Balls, in which he applies black makeup to his testicles. What would you say he's after in that piece? Well, I think it's important to remember that Bruce started out his career as a painter. And in one of the galleries at PS1, you have the last extant Nauman painting, which is shaped... Um, and within that shape is an illusionistic, um, almost three-dimensional form. That form uh, gets taken out of the two-dimension and starts to become sculpture. But at the same time, Bruce is also doing something called art makeup, where he uses his body as the canvas and covers it with um, extraordinary care. I think it's white, green, red and black. And you can read all sorts of things into it. Um, It's also the time of civil rights, and I think um, a white man turning his body black has to have some implications that deal with the um, ethnic unrest and inequalities of that time. But I think it's also really just about uh, using himself, his body, to work his way out of this problem of how to be a sculptor having trained as a painter. I see. Um, He once told an interviewer, if I was an artist and I was in the studio, then whatever I was doing in the studio must be art. Was he being facetious or getting at some essential truth? I I don't think he was being facetious at all. I mean, I think that came from a reference to very early work, the work I referred to earlier of these early uh, films and videos where he would just do an exercise over and over and over and over and over and over again for the whole length of the tape, close to an hour. And while you can approach it and say, this is really boring, this guy's doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, if you have patience, if you have empathy, if you pay attention, you begin to see the body change. You begin to see the difficulty. You begin to see the arduousness. Um, And something that looks very simple becomes actually difficult. And I know just installing this show, going up and down the halls, up and down the halls, it could have looked like I was performing a Bruce Nauman. But I also learned at the end of the day, it was exhausting. And I think um, I think Bruce wasn't facetious. I think he really was um, actually in a certain way following Bob Rauschenberg's collapse of Art and Life or Andy Warhol's or uh, Duchamp's. I mean, there there's a history that comes before him that actually uses um, humor and darkness in um, almost a choral way, uh, but also um, takes the everyday and uh, allows the artist, insists the artist use that. I mean, Merce Cunningham, whom Bruce did a set for, it consisted of big fans pointed at the audience, um, 
used vernacular uh, movement to choreograph his work. So it's also was a period in time when artists, in a way, were rejecting things that came before abstract expressionism, the sort of heroics of it, let's say, or minimalism, the scientific coolness of it. Um, and we're trying to find a way forward, and they used their own lives and their own bodies um, to do that. Well, thank you, Kathy. Thank you. My pleasure. Bruce Nauman, Disappearing Acts, is at the Museum of Modern Art until the 18th of February and at MoMA PS1 until the 25th of February. We'll be back with Islamic Art at the British Museum after this. Few people can claim to have shaped the events of their time, but the French businessman Jean-Yves Olivier most certainly can. In Africa in the 1980s, he played a pivotal role in the peace negotiations that contributed to the ending of apartheid in South Africa and the release of Nelson Mandela. It was a fact he typically kept to himself until it emerged in a recent documentary. Olivier does nothing by halves. On November the 8th, his collection of early Chinese art is offered at Bonhams in a standalone sale. It includes, among other treasures, a magnificent Tang Dynasty sculpture of a Bactrian camel, described by Bonhams Asia chairman Colin Sheaf as, quote, one of the finest of its kind ever to appear at auction. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Now, on the 18th of October, the British Museum opened its new displays of Islamic art, the Al-Bukhari Foundation Gallery of the Islamic World. It's the latest in a series of new displays that reflect the director, Hartwig Fisher's steady rehang of the museum. Jane Jakeman, a novelist and specialist in Islamic studies who regularly reviews Islamic art for the art newspaper, is with me to discuss the new displays. Jane, can you tell me what the displays of the Islamic collection at the British Museum were like before now? They were squashed into crowded cabinets right at the back of the building and you only found them by happy chance unless you were really searching for them. And now they have two enormous galleries. It's the restoration of the 19th century museum and they have masses of space and light and very high ceilings which are quite unusual in a modern gallery. Indeed. And... uh, The light comes from some windows which are also in the ceiling as well. And these windows have been covered with, uh, it's a form of mushrabiya, which is the Arabic form of covering windows with pierced uh, hardwood. In this case, it's walnut. And it gives the most beautiful light drifting through the windows. But it's also apparently actually technically very good for the objects. So it's a wonderful compromise. And it fills these huge galleries with a soft light, which is perfect. And and light is so crucial when you're talking about Islamic artefacts, isn't it? Light is almost a medium in in Islamic culture. Yes, it is. I once uh, lived for a while in a room which had these mashrabiya windows, and uh, you became aware that light actually is a living thing. You know, it's not a, a means of seeing. It's actually something that's always in the room with you. And I think these galleries... Uh, reflect that because there are all these substances that reflect light. There's luster, there's metalwork, there's glass, there's crystal, there's mother of pearl, all these beautiful reflective surfaces. Was there a reason why the British Museum would not have given prominence to its Islamic collections in the past? Yes, uh, because basically they lost out, and it's all Prince Albert's fault, really. I mean, he of the heroic whiskers uh, in the 1851 Great Exhibition, uh, 
Islamic art ended up being labelled as arts and crafts and therefore inferior to the beaux-arts, the fine arts. And it was all relegated to the V&A. And painting and sculpture was uh, relegated to the National Portrait Gallery. And the BM had to make do with what was left, which was basically bits of archaeology and odd things that travellers had brought home, curiosities. And uh, I I think you could call it, you know, very high-class bric-a-brac and a few spoils of war, you know, that they couldn't fit in anywhere else. So that's why... They had this odd sort of collection jumbled up in the back rooms. And gradually, Venetia Porter, who's the current senior curator, through a series of exhibitions, has managed to highlight the Islamic collection. They've also got funding that's allowed them to buy things. And in fact, in this present exhibition, it goes right from uh, the 6th century, time of the prophet, and it takes us right up to some modern calligraphy that she's commissioned. And that's quite stunning too. The galleries are divided into two areas. The first area is from the 6th century, uh, more or less contemporary with our Middle Ages, and in fact leads on fairly naturally from the other medieval galleries around it. And the next gallery takes us from 1500, more or less contemporary with our Renaissance, and uh, takes us up to the present day. And that takes us through the huge empires created by the Ottoman Turks and the Safavids in Iran. And it takes us through the problems in Islam as well that were arising then because the Safavids uh, were Shiites and uh, the Ottomans um, were Sunni. And consequently, those two had been at war really in Islam from uh, after the death of the Prophet, basically, the struggle to succeed him. I think one of the criticisms I would have of the exhibition, and I haven't got many, I do think it's wonderful, it's a marvellous experience, is that perhaps there isn't enough about warfare. I mean, I may sound a bit blokish here, but frankly, uh, armour and weaponry was uh, one of the great Islamic trades and enormously successful. And I think that practically from the start, Islam was embattled and it, they still, in in a way, there's still a sense of paranoia within within it. I think because they still feel very threatened. The other thing I missed a bit was more emphasis on religion because perhaps we could do with a bit more explanation. I think uh, people tend to think of Islam as quite an enclosed world, and a, a little help in getting into that aspect of it, a little bit more help. But you can see practically all the main themes of Islam. You can see the um, ceramics, the marvellous ceramics, and you can see the distinction between the two main groups very clearly. You can see the um, Ottoman ceramics, the Iznik, as it's usually called, of blue and red, brilliant, stark colours, and then the Safavid ceramics, which are delicate and fragile and have these beautiful pastel colours, lovely flowing drapery, and youths in delicate poses. So the the separate worlds of Islam are uh, visible, I think, in the displays. One of the things that's really striking, I think, is is that sort of um, 
the way that color is unleashed in very in different ways throughout the two rooms it's 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 a, it's it's a display that delights the eye right the way through isn't it yes they're not afraid of it are they and uh, the curators weren't afraid of it either so good for them uh, and that is another thing i think that this exhibition has brought out that the bm couldn't do before everything was really a bit dull and dim and slightly dusty looking <laughs> before but now you really get the glitter and the shine and the pinks and reds and absolutely heavenly arrays of blues from turquoise through all the peacocky colours. I, I love the, um, the fact that um, right the way through there are sort of different um, modes that you can adopt. You can you can be very scientific almost um, with, a, almost with your, your sort of metaphorical magnifying glass looking in very great detail at something like a miniature for instance and then you have sort of great, great set pieces like this wall of costumes which yes, runs along yes, the side yes. of one wall. Yeah. Yes, that's marvellous and it has such an array of colour, oranges and blues and also in that wall of costumes I think it demonstrates that by Islamic uh, is meant not necessarily specifically the religion, but, uh, for example, there's a Jewish bride's costume from the 19th century, which is very striking. So they have taken the opportunity to include cultures which were uh, followed under the rule of Islam and in conjunction with it quite often. They talk about it as being a kind of uh, guide to material culture, the the wealth of... Uh, materials, whether daily objects or very high art, that are in the various forms of culture where Islam is present. Do you think that's successfully carried? I mean, things like having games and then having, again, these these extraordinarily delicate miniatures, for instance, in the same... Oh, yes, yes. It is a visual culture. Uh, And I would call this exhibition immersive. It's not like the average exhibition of paintings, for example. I I call them the Stations of the Cross approach, you know, where you stop in front of each one and nod and then move on. Um, this is one where you are actually in rooms that reflect life. Uh, it may be usually it is life at the top end, I have to say. I mean, if you see a cup, it's likely to be the white jade mughal cup. <laughs> but but you see a whole array of, of living things to touch and feel. And of course, you can't touch them, but you can more or less touch them with your eyes. They're so vivid. Indeed. Obviously, it's taking us from West Africa to Southeast Asia. So it, what I liked about it was that geographically, you, one feels like one's traveling across the world in, in various ways and uh, not in any sort of linear fashion. Um, do you feel in that way it does convincingly express the plurality of Islamic experience and Islamic culture? Yes, I I think it does. It does express that huge variety of peoples who lived within it. The Salkum treasure uh, was found... uh, in Salcombe, in Devon, actually, it was it uh, was retrieved from a wrecked ship. Nobody knows exactly when the ship was wrecked, sometime in the seventeenth century, and it contains uh, scraps of gold, fragments of jewellery, and also a whole load of gold coins. And these were the coins minted by the Moroccan Sultan, who was contemporary with our Queen Elizabeth. He was known as Al Wahhabi, which means the golden one, because he was so rich. And this was gold that would originally have come across the deserts from middle Africa and ended up presumably in a Dutch ship, it's thought, 
somewhere wrecked off a little English fishing village. So I think that shows the, the reach, if you like. They're not overly kind of uh, didactic about wanting to us to follow trade routes. and things. You can, no, you can no. find all that sort of stuff in there, yes, can't you? But, yes. but there's no, in yes. a way, um, it just does encourage looking at objects yes. and making associations, yes. doesn't it? Yes, you can just move from one beautiful object to another, if you like, or as you said, you can study the development of science, which, of course, is a hugely important thing. You can look at astronomy if you want to and follow uh, follow trade routes if you want to. But there's no kind of, you know, none of the well-worn path along the Silk Route kind of stuff. It's a very open exhibition in that way, I think. Um, how did you find the contemporary bit at the end? I mean, I, 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 that's more my field, and so I was yes, actually very excited yes. by yes, Idris yes. Khan's work. Yes, I, I liked it very much. I'm a bit short, so it seemed to go rather high up the it's wall true, it for does me. Go, it, 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 I, I did wonder about that. Yes, <laughs> I couldn't really see a lot of things up at the top, but I think it is exciting. And this follows on from, I think it was 2006, they had the exhibition Word into Art, which dealt with calligraphy right up to modern times and there was some stunning modern art in that. Um, one of the things I remember which was perhaps prophetic is it was a terrible one of a small child toting a machine gun. You know, that, that, That's a haunting image that stayed with one. I think this way in which the British Museum has developed and commissioned contemporary work is wonderful actually. It's actually, it seems to me, a tremendously important moment for the British Museum to do this because at the moment in Britain, uh, Islamic culture, Muslim people are being demonised in the popular media and even by mainstream politicians. Is is that something that you feel that that, that somehow this is this is really illustrating the complexity of the Muslim experience? Yes, there were two kinds of Islamic culture in this country. I would say one was museum based and university based, and consisted basically of history of sultans and the history of the courts, and the other was the actual living culture of Muslims living in Britain, and I think the. British Museum exhibition of the Hajj, which was immensely popular with people living all over Britain, Muslims who would normally never have come to the British Museum, never have thought it was anything to do with them. Uh, They came and they loved it. And I think this follows on in the continuation of using contemporary work. So we began by saying that the, that we had two dusty rooms at the back of the back of the museum. Do we now have rooms that feel like they deserve to be in the British Museum. Oh, yes. Museum. We have two large, spacious treasure hoards and uh, the light glittering as you move through them. That's why I say it's an immersive experience. Moving through it is just extraordinary pleasures for the eye, one after another. And you can linger. You don't have to rush. And, of course, it's part of the permanent collection, so it's always going to be there. Jane, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome. It's a pleasure. The Al Bukhari Foundation Gallery of the Islamic World is open now, and of course, it's free. And that's all for this week. If you haven't already, we'd love you to subscribe to the podcast. And if you're on Twitter, follow us at Tan Audio. That's at T-A-N Audio. You can also follow us on our main Twitter account and Facebook at The Art Newspaper. And our Instagram is theartnewspaper.official. 
Thanks to Nancy and Kathy, to Jane, and thank you for listening. Join us again next week when we'll be exploring the Dorothea Tanning exhibition in Madrid and discussing women surrealists more widely. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. <laughs>